it's okay to throw a pity party. And from now on, then I still do that, actually, because so much shit happens to you. And you think, oh, for crying out loud. And you want to curl up in a ball and, and be angry and be. And that's okay. That's okay. But I was living there. I put my tent up there in that pity party. Uh, and no, nah, no. Nah. So I learned that actually um, the pity party is okay, but it doesn't help me. So what I subsequently learned is that each and every challenge, each and every shit that happened to me, and a lot of it happened, um, that I can grow from that. Welcome to Give a Heck. I am your host, Dwight Heck, and for much of my life, lived my life in quiet desperation, wondering how I was going to pay the bills, take vacations, save for retirement, and one day wondering if I would get off the hamster wheel of life and have purpose. A life that most of society lives, which takes us to work, then home, then repeat, and pays us hopefully enough just to survive. The harsh truth that most live with more months than money and have no idea how to live life on purpose, not by accident. This ensures the mass majority are living not just financially broke, however emotionally and mentally as well due to financial pressures. In each episode, I will introduce you to thoughts, ideas, and guests that can help you to learn how you too can live life on purpose, not by accident. Good day, and welcome to Give a Heck. On today's show, I welcome Stefan Neff. Stefan is a passionate about demystifying mental health problems and helping the people around him live a life so full of joy that yesterday is jealous of today. Born in Germany, he has studied medicine at the prestigious Heidelberg University before traveling and working around the world. Nowadays, he has settled down as an anesthesiologist in beautiful New Zealand and has become a best-selling author and advocate for mental health and addiction. He is uniquely qualified in this role. After all, a lifetime of trauma led Stefan to drown his sorrows, only to find that the little critters can swim. As an alcoholic in recovery, he has experienced addiction and mental health problems firsthand. After successful rehabilitation, Stefan is now an expert in living a life so fantastic that alcohol has simply no role to play. Stefan shares this passion through his podcast, YouTube channel, and other social media, all titled My Steps to Sobriety. In his book, My Steps to Sobriety, he shares the lessons he has learned as a doctor and as a man. And the truth is simple. The past does not equal the future. Every alcoholic can turn his life around one little decision at a time, and this book shows a person how to do that. I'd like to welcome you to the show, Stefan. Thanks so much for agreeing to come on and share with us some of your life journey. Thank you so much, Dwight. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, it's an honor for me to have you. Um, our pre-conversation was grand, so I imagine we're going to have some the best type of podcast uh, emotional hills and valleys and with an excellent finish. I, I, I can guarantee that. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you about that I focus on is a person's origin story, because really at the end of the day, if people are to take us serious vulnerability and sharing the good, bad, and ugly from our earliest recollections to where we are today is important in my opinion. So could you do me a favor, brother, and share me with me your origin story? What key things from your childhood to adulthood led you to where you are today? Mm. I mean, that is really the crux of it, isn't it? Um, because in that time, we get so many core beliefs established and so many, so many little voices starting to become uh, dominant and yeah unfortunately uh, my origin story is not so pretty not that it was a uh, blood and gore abuse story or something like that no um, my mother uh, and my father gave my mother gave birth to me in 66 in Germany um, she was of a, of a poor background and she was a woman with her own problems and um yeah she 
she married a man who was my father and quickly there was a divorce. So one of the first memories that I can literally remember is a cup, a cup of something flying one way and then a, um, a, a, a tin of cocoa powder flying the other way and in in the in the tin inverted and the cocoa powder came out so that was the very first thing i remember this tripling of cocoa powder down um so this was the fighting that happened and not much from that time i do remember um that was when i was really young um my there was a divorce then and my mum was of you know she was a hard-working woman so she went to work and I became initially uh brought up by my great-grandma and then uh became a latchkey child uh, really to to fend for myself more or less um down the line um she found her youth love her big love when she was 18 they got back together and married and that was my stepfather who adopted me and that was, that was around about 11 12 years old and again this was this was a both of them were working working people blue collar people who um did their best to raise me according to their core beliefs those beliefs unfortunately were very tainted by their own upbringing of uh, after the Second World War of uh, poverty, and then those dreams about being someone else that they weren't. So there was always an envy and a jealousy in them. And my father, uh, my stepfather, for example, he um, idolized those uh, those 50s, 60s American stars, Tony Curtis, and he actually looked damn like him. So he became a women's man. And so that was sort of the way he modeled himself to me as a father. So if you ask me in, in that kind of early uh, teenager years, I was indoctrinated to that a, a, a real man um, is having as many women as possible, uh, regardless of the costs. And that is the way you live. So there were certain core values handed down to me that with hindsight were not really the nicest. Um, so a bit of screwed up childhood, but more in the sense of being left to fight alone or develop alone. What then really happened, so the first girlfriend um, and the first girlfriend lived in an area that was not so nice in Mannheim and I visited her one one afternoon, drove home um, from, or was about to drive home, and was sitting with her at the train station, um, a tram station, waiting to to take the public transport home. And to cut a long story short, I became the victim of a gang assault there um, that left me pretty battered, uh, no front teeth left. I was about 13 then. Um, and it was that was the start of a very dark time um i brought the guy the gang leader behind bars and he swore to kill me um basically um he got three years and in my simple mind at that time i believed that and it became clear to me i need to get my shit together so from being a normal boy who was not so much into sports I turned towards martial arts. I started training with the police, uh, which you can do in Germany, the police sports clubs. And I started to train jiu-jitsu and, and other martial arts. And that really became my life. So during the daytime, I was a student. In the evening, I became Rambo or Ninja. And I became quite good in that. And I so it was a, a time of me focusing on school, and somehow around that time, I also uh, figured out that I could actually be quite good at school. Uh, and it started with a bet, or not or with a thing. My, my, my stepfather said, come on, if you are the best at school, the best at, in your class, in the test, um, you get $5. If you are the second best, you get $2. And that's it. And believing, and I was, I was sort of mediocre at, at best. 
And so I actually thought, oh, I can make some money there. And uh, suddenly I started bringing home ones. So in an American, in a German school system, you were the best. And <laughs> my father never paid me. Uh, he didn't have the money. <laughs> he was quite surprised that I was actually doing it. But here you go. So suddenly I, I, I started bringing uh, the, uh, good grades home. And suddenly I also became the hero at school because I could, could help other kids. Um, I could beat <laughs> an, an, a teacher who was not very liked. I beat him in his own game because he made a test every single time. Every single day there was a test. And the test, the fans was very good because the test included you had to watch the evening news the night before. And the test the next day was on the evening news. So he actually forced us to take an interest in, in, in politics and things like that. But everyone hated him for that. And I actually beat him in his game. So, so there were times when I knew more about a test subject than he. And that made me the hero in my school. And that was quite cool. So suddenly I was in with the really cool guys. Um, and it was bizarre. So I guess that is where I got hooked on work, workaholic. So I became a workaholic far earlier than I became an alcoholic. Okay, so workaholic was the uh, was my go-to. I could get myself lost in history books and things like that. Um, so I guess running away was a very early theme there, uh, if you look at it. But yeah, I was I became Rambo, and so therefore school workouts uh, into the nighttime, two four hours um, of training. And that was me pretty much until I was 18 and went to university. And um, then a number of things happened. First of all, it became clear to me that this gang leader will never find me, number one. Number two is I found girls. They become actually quite good, quite attractive. Now, I, I'm a man who can learn a lot of things and I can break things down into the basics. So the core values that my stepfather had had put into my mind I put to work and I got really good at it so there you go um so girls and then I found alcohol and the very first time I realized that was in the first semester we were sitting of sitting with two uh classmates or semester mates in and university mates uh in a beer garden a German beer garden and it was summer and we both had big steins so a, a liter of wine in a glass and we were laughing and I felt the first time this dopamine rush, this, this feeling of, fuck, I, I get a, a goosebumps. Even now, after how many years, I can remember that feeling of absolute freedom, of love, of laughter, of release. And from then on, alcohol came with a sound effect. Oh, that was the sound effect that alcohol gave me. Whatever shit happened in my life, give me two free glasses of wine and I feel these hard knots in the shoulders relaxing. And it was, it was beautiful. It allowed me to escape my reality. The darkness since the gang assault, those five years of darkness were suddenly gone. The moment I had a glass in my hand, I loved with people. Um, I was probably quite shy. Not probably, I was shy. Let's call it what it is. Um, and guess what? When a teenager gets his front teeth knocked out and they put some temporary crowns in there, which might fall out at any one time, um, you're not smiling very much, okay? And you're certainly not not going out there being an out outgoing guy. No, it was awful. But then at 18, they finally gave myself permanent teeth uh, implants. And then suddenly nothing was falling out and I actually could start smiling. I could start singing. Now I can't, I can hold a tune just, and I can play the guitar just, but give me a drink. And suddenly I'm the, I'm the center. I'm the center of the, of the, the game. And it's just, and girls loved it. So there you go. So this this combination of of newly found freedom cemented the role of alcohol in my life. 
And alcohol is great. Alcohol is initially it's a friend. It is the Dutch courage. Uh, it makes so many people do take those little steps that they otherwise wouldn't have done. And suddenly their life turns into a beautiful thing somewhere. So alcohol can have a very powerful and beautiful effect. And that's what it had on me. It, it, it rescued me out of my darkness. And we always keep forgetting that, that their alcohol and our addictions actually play a really important role in our life. There is trauma, there is darkness, there are damn good reasons why we want to escape our reality. And that might be alcohol in my case, or actually work to start off with, workaholic, then alcoholic. Um, for other people, it's food, gambling, sex. Well, sex, with hindsight, actually, sex was probably also on my list, um, the more the better kind of a thing. Um and so on. So there are a number of things where I have to say, okay, I am clearly an addict with hindsight. At the time, this was the 80s. That is what you did. And we did it with style. So we did it with style. You have to say that. There was, we had some damn good parties. There was some debauchery going on there, but there was always clear rules, outs, un, unspoken rules, but there was never I've never experienced any violence when we were in our in our parties, in our thing. There was never any abuse of sorts. There was always, uh, we had a party on a Saturday. On a Sunday, we would meet up for breakfast. And it's always interesting who came with whom in which cars. So, so it was interesting. Um, so it was a, a time of exploration for all of us, for many of us. And it was a nice time. Um, so I, I have very pleasant memories. And again, that is probably a shame because had I, from the word go, only vomit and gore and, and, and finding myself in trouble, maybe my journey with alcohol wouldn't have been so long, but actually it, the alcohol stayed my friend. And I say it now with, with quotation marks, because guess what? I have never learned to deal with my emotions. I have never learned about core beliefs. Yes, I was a doctor. Yes, I went to psychology classes. God. And I became actually, funnily enough, down the line, I became really good in that stuff. I could. I, a door went, came open and someone walked into my clinic. I could read them from a mile. Oh, depression. Oh, alcoholic. Clear. Huh? But I isn't that always them. the case, though? That's always the case. <laughs> we, we can be experts and everybody else but our own they, like they say the mechanics have the worst running vehicles finance people can have the worst <laughs> finances i'm serious right so true. Been, so true so true so i get what you're saying it makes it makes a lot of sense mm. it's easy for us to spot the forest and the you know we can spot the trees for everybody else but not our own forests and our issues oh hell right? yes hell yes so yeah, alcohol was a friend, but unfortunately, because I never learned how to deal with my own emotions, they ran riot with me. And my emotions were, I, 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 I lived with this belief that you have to be a certain type of man, kind of. Well, a, you got that from your stepfather, though. Well, exactly. But no, this kind of living Coca-Cola advertisement. Yeah. Always fun. Always good. <laughs> always <laughs> always yeah. on. You I'm have, always absolutely. on. Absolutely. You have to be like that. And yeah. there was a, a, a more sinister background because I was always on. I was constantly on. And that made me really good. So this hypervigilance that with hindsight was a classic, uh, classic tick for PTSD. I rephrased that and actually called it, hey, I'm good in my job as a doctor. You can't catch me out. So therefore, I was very good in emergencies. I became uh, a teacher for other doctors in any kind of emergency uh, course you could imagine. I ran the course. Um, so I was really good in that. Did I click on to the fact that I had PTSD? No. Uh, it I had it disguised so beautiful. No, I'm switched on. I'm I'm the man. I'm the man. And uh, it took me it took me until about five years ago, until suddenly, the enormity, the the impact of that gang assault, and the way I have then oh, rephrased it in my mind, put constructs around it, um, 
how much that was still affecting everything, how, what I did thereafter. And that really blew me away. It is, I did not, I, I did never appreciate that until more recently, until I did more work on myself to see, oh my God, that's where it all came together. And but that realization is tough though, because we live in a society, it doesn't matter if you're where you are or you're in North America where I am, people literally alcohol addictions are sensationalized with us without even being verbal on tv shows on movies what's the first thing they do who the hell in the middle of the day of a, of, as a lawyer is going to go over and pour themselves a drink and it's middle of the day and their and their client hey would you like a drink or they're stressed out and they come in and this person did this and that would you like a drink what it, uh -huh. it's so ingrained in us that Absolutely. it's you know i'm not giving you an excuse i'm giving the audience a reason to understand that addiction is pushed on us every single day and it's normalized and when it's normalized it's not, no no like no that, it's encouraged it's encouraged yes. my, my yes. brother this exactly. is what you've just this what you've just described to me there's a beautiful study out there by the uk institute for alcohol research and they uh actually spend thousand hours watching um two uh, uh two streaming channels and check the most popular things that are being watched and checked 1000 hours and made notes how often is alcohol being displayed or drunken or talked about in 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 a way that could be deemed marketing and the answer is every three minutes and it doesn't matter which kind of shows you watch it, it might be medieval etc every three it's minutes sad. it's it sad and you're right uh, you know you look at anything medieval they're drinking out of the big goblets and they're drinking <laughs> they're drinking you know they're drinking yeah. mead they're drinking wine they're drinking rum they're drinking whatever beer mm. and the issue is i get it there there can be a place for alcohol in our society but let's dial it back to what you were talking about with your origin we are handed down core values that really our brain isn't wired enough to understand whether they're right or wrong that mm. core values aren't always our parents. It can be the clubs we associate with as a kid. It can be a, mm. a coach that's coaching us. It can be our, our extended family. And then add television and everything else on top of that. And now today we have mm. social media. The noise that's happening out there mm. to, mm. well, normalize or like you would say, you know, actually encourage people to drink is huge. Mm. So I've fought against that my whole life. And what I mean by that, I was that person like you in the 80s and partying and this and, and that and enjoying life or what I thought was life because I looked at other people in my parents' life, my father and, and relatives that drank every day. And they were, oh, there's nothing wrong with having a drink every single day, <laughs> right? Or they have you know one or two glasses of wine, a whiskey or whatever you want to drink. And I grew up in those same things. And then you grow up and get become a young adult. And it's like, oh, this is fine. Hey, every, every time somebody comes over, it doesn't matter. Uh, you're having yeah. a drink. Oh, what did I see when I was growing up? Would you like something to drink? And <laughs> we're talking coffee or tea or pop. They were talking no. like, let's have, let's, let's have a pint. Let's have a, let's have a hard one. So I get where you're coming from. Yeah. It's, it's, we have well, so much pattern teaching, right? So yeah. it's, it's, it's so ingrained I in us. And in all fairness, I mean, that's not an excuse now, but if you look back at my heroes, they were actually the anti-heroes of the 80s. Lethal Weapon, Mel Gibson, he oh, wakes yeah. up at the start of the film and coughs half his lung out whilst he's putting a cigarette on, goes have a pee naked with a beer in his hand. That yeah. was the opening scene of Lethal Weapon. Yeah, uh, take Bruce Willis, uh, take all the, the heroes of the 80s. Uh, Alcohol was part and parcel of that. Everything. Because it was also, yeah, it was part and parcel of our society. It but was it's normal. worse, though. It's oh, please. Worse, way worse. Like you said, every three minutes, I can't mm. watch a show or a movie. The difference is, is realization. People watching or listening, having that realization and, and you listening to what we're talking about, now you're going to notice it more, too. Mm. Right. It's we, we have something in our on our uh, uh, brain that once we associate something, you buy a car, all of a sudden you see that car all over the road and before you didn't see it. <laughs> right. It's, true, it's a proven true, true, fact. True. So it's the same thing. So those listening and watching, 
you're going to start all of a sudden noticing what we're talking about in the movies and television, your own family and friends. And again, hopefully that realization, if you are somebody that drinks constantly and uses it as a mask, a bandaid to hide the PTSD or the depression or the anxiety, there's people that can help. And we're going to talk some about your book. We'll get to that as we proceed along with the podcast. And then there's people like, you know, Stefan that has a book that can make you have realization, or maybe you're already realizing it and you're looking for those first steps and you need a coach. You got somebody that can coach you, right. That can help you through that, that trials and tribulation. Um, there were so many things I wrote down about your origin story that were, <laughs> you know, amazing. But you know, you like you said, your your stepfather idolized the the stars, and he wanted to be that type of person. So mm. he was your role model. He taught you what you thought a man should be, or what he Correct. thought a man should be, and you seen that. But the pattern, though, that I seen throughout your whole origin is that you're you're tenacious. You're a person that mm. is gonna. Mm whether you're a high functioning alcoholic, you were still a person that was able to um, continue to achieve and move forward. And I see that today all the time. And that's what I would like to get into this conversation. In my life, I've dealt with so many professionals and we're talking at all levels of professionals, not just Mm -hmm. doctors that have addiction issues to prescription, non-prescription drugs. But the main thing that they're addicted to, the majority of them, and I have clients that are are in very much big professionals, is alcohol. And many don't want the world to know about their their dirty laundry, their addiction, their their cover up for the fact of their weakness, right? Because it is, I don't want to say they're weak people, but they've got something yeah. that they don't know how to strengthen and to have resolve to deal with all those things we mentioned, PTSD, anxiety, depression, mental challenges, emotional challenges. So they, they hide it with their drinking or whatever form of addiction. Mm-hmm. What things did you do to keep it a secret so that, you know, <laughs> as to not tarnish your <laughs> reputation as a doctor, <laughs> right? There had to have been things that you did. Like you know, I remember reading uh, in your profile, something about how you hide a bottle and stuff like that, but <laughs> it's so much more than where do you hide the bottle? How do you cover, uh, how did you cover up so that you could keep that facade oh, going? Please, what did you do? please. Um, uh, hiding is the key thing. And, and, and it is really, if you think about it as an addict, you are so busy. I mean, so busy in the morning I was hiding that I was hungover. Then I was hiding that I was thinking about the alcohol. Then I was hiding buying the alcohol, buying going to different uh, different uh, supermarkets or bottle shops, etc. Doing the turn so it doesn't appear so so normal that you walk out with I don't know six bottles of wine every day. Then I was hiding the alcohol. I was hiding that I was drinking. I was hiding that I was drunk, and then I couldn't hide anymore, and then basically was was asleep. And then it restarted the next day. So God, I was I was full time hiding, and there was this shame and guilt riding me. I call them the evil twins, um, and they were constant companions. And however much I did in my life, and I did a lot of things. I mean, I, I accrued a lot of this this alphabet salad behind your behind your name the titles and the, the, i did a lot of things i have to say um i put a lot of hard work in tenacity in and that got me somewhere i was always a go-getter and i was driven the workaholic after all um yet i always saw myself as a failure and that was my my core belief and it's still a core belief today i am a failure and God knows where that was put in my head, but I'm a failure. It doesn't matter what I achieve. I consider myself a failure. And I proved it to myself for a long time every day because I had to-do lists. And my to-do list, Superman couldn't do half of what is there in a week. Um, and I believed I had to do all of that in a day. And if I only could take one or two or three things off, see, I was a failure. And it was that kind of screwed core belief that um that made it so easy for me ah see i'm a failure therefore i might as well drink um see i i today i will not drink and then in the evening you have a drink ah see you're a failure there you go um you might as well have a drink 
And it was also my emotions I had no idea about. And my the role that I played in many things that were not so nice, I completely neglected. It was always the others. Look what they did to me, because they did that. Now, I drink two bottles of vodka. Ha, that will show them. Ha, ha. And it was that kind of screwed belief. And you think that when you actually put it in your own words like that, and I, I was forced to do that in rehab, you suddenly realize, what, what did you do? Where did that come from? And But it was, that was how I ran my life for such a long time. And in, 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 when you come to, to rehab, to a good rehab, they, they coach you and they, they guide you through a process. And one of the processes is that you do, for example, these resentment lists and these anger lists. And anger and resentment were my two prime uh, go-tos in my 30s, 40s. And in all fairness, a lot of shit happened to me. Okay, a lot of things happened to me. So it's not just that it's all my fault. But what I neglected was that the sheer fact that I had a role to play in absolutely everything that was happening. Because I have got choices. I know that nowadays, how I respond to an adverse thing happening in my life. And that was the interesting thing. So you start making this list. Joe, in the first column, did that. Second column Third column, that's how it made me feel. And this was sort of these anger and resentment lists. And you, you, I just went to town, write them down. I had good lists going. So you were journaling out your pain so you could eventually in, stay away from alcohol. In rehab, that's right. In rehab, yes. I learned yeah. how to do that. Yeah. But then a good, a good counselor will, after a few days or weeks, come back to those lists and say, okay, so Joe did that. That how, made it, that is how it made you feel and then a fourth column comes what role did you have to play in that and the moment they ask you that you actually think oh shit oh shit or, um, um, um. and suddenly it's suddenly your your anger and resentment um now how shall i say that you suddenly make breakthroughs in the fact that you are behaving like a dick and that maybe joe did that because you behaved like an idiot um so there was you're forced, maybe, to, uh, you're forced to own your own crap and that was something i had never learned integrity um was not something that i subscribed to i didn't know really what integrity meant and integrity for me nowadays means doing the right thing when no one is watching and that is that is uh, that is something that I love to do nowadays. I don't think I was very good in that when I was, let's say, ten years, fifteen years ago. So, it's it's intriguing. So, on the positive side, though, rehab. Once I stopped stopped alcohol, and once I stopped hiding, once I started experiencing my emotions on a daily basis and getting to know these these bloody waves of neurochemicals washing over my brain that's where then the healing started because first of all these emotions however strong they are and whatever kind of emotion it is it is like a wave in the ocean and these waves come now you can swim in the ocean and there's a wave coming and you can get really angry about this wave. Oh, you wave, stay away from me. I don't like you wave. The wave doesn't give a damn. It comes, it washes over you and it's gone. That's what happens. End of the story. So you might as well learn about this wave and play with this wave. You might dive underneath the wave. You might have a surfboard or a boogie board and you surf that wave. You let yourself being thrown around by the wave. That's all, all experiences you can do in the ocean. Now, I began to learn to do the same thing with emotions that washed over me. And I began to see emotions as messengers from my body to let me know, okay, hang on, there is something not right here. 
And I think the first thing or the, the, the most real thing uh, where that became clear to me was, was the urge to drink. So, of course, when you go for for quarter of a century, when alcohol is the go-to for anything that is happening uh, to you, then and you take that suddenly away, oh boy, your body doesn't like that. And I'm not talking about withdrawal. I'm talking now the first year uh, in sobriety, where basically you are need to do a lot of work to keep those urges at bay. And I very quickly became to realize that uh, halt was the key thing for me. Halt, uh, halt in Deutsch, uh, in German, H-A-L-T, uh, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Now, if I was not looking after myself, if I came home uh, from work uh, and I had not hydrated, I had not eaten well, um, there was maybe some shit happening at work, angry, um, I felt that my wife doesn't really uh, uh, doesn't really listen to me and show me the respect I deserve or any kind of crap like that. Um, well, that's already free. H-A-L. Um, and tired was a given after a long day work. That's four. Now, if I had three out of four, I could imagine a glass of wine. If I had four out of four, oh, I saw this beautiful crystal glass there. I could I could feel the weight of the glass. I saw the condensation running on the outside with this beautiful amber liquid and the smell of the citrus and the vanilla and the oak coming from the Chardonnay. It was there. I wanted it. I wanted it now. These are all, this was, this was powerful shit, I, I realized. Halt. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. So how I learned to deal with those urges is to realize that these are waves. And therefore, I distracted myself. I did other things. I went for a swim or I went, I actually started paying attention to what my body told me. And I realized, okay, maybe, maybe I should drink a bit more water. Uh, maybe I should actually um, somehow work on my anger, on my emotions, on my on the way I see the world. And that's then where the mindfulness came in. And that's then where other strategies came in to deal with that. But to, the initial thing was to learn what emotions are, to experience them, how they feel for you, to realize that these are waves of neurochemicals that go away and that you don't have to act on these emotions. Now that was powerful, powerful, powerful. And the classic example, the first example where that really, where it really happened is after rehab, I came home and it's always tricky because I was four weeks inpatient rehab in a, in a most beautiful rehab hospital I could ever imagine. That's unfortunately is no longer there. Um, but I had this bubble on, in which I could grow and in which I could explore. And the, the problem of course, is that the loved ones, your family, are there at home, they're still nose to the grindstone, uh, working hard. They have no idea about the progress that you make, uh, the, about the changes that you make, the transformation you undergo. Um, for them, they don't know. So I came home and um, somewhere in the first few days, weeks, my wife and I had a row. As usual, as was, this was not a good marriage by that time. And it was Needless to say, the alcohol left its left, left its scars on my relationship as well. Um, now, we were standing in the kitchen, and we were rowing back and forth, Arr! and it was that typical. My God, her core belief. Well, she was a broken woman in her mind. We know that. I was a broken man. I know that. Um, we had absolute screwed core beliefs, and we had no idea about our emotions. Needless to say, we were fighting like cats and dogs over things that were really, we, we were just triggering each other all the time. So there we were, triggering Third World War. Arr! And suddenly I had this out-of-body experience. I saw literally my mind went out there about 45 degrees up, 45 degrees to the front, and it looked down like a camera. And I saw the two of us. And I must have gone blank in my face. Um, because my wife suddenly stopped rowing and just looked at me funny. And after 
fraction of a second or seconds. I don't know how long it lasted. I said, look, Lisa, I just want to go outside of the room. Um, just forgive me for a moment. And in a very calm way. And I just, just stepped out. And she had no idea what was going on. Absolutely no idea. And I went out and I thought, what the hell? And then I, I, after a while, I came back in and said, I'm really sorry. Um, and took ownership and said, I don't really know why I was so angry to you. And I'm sorry for the things that I said. And she was completely flawed. This had never happened. Never, never once had I taken ownership. I was always fighting. I was defending. I was the, the Rambo who could be up. I was the knight in shining armor. I'm a doctor. Look at me. I deserve respect. All that bullshit. My God. And then suddenly I actually showed integrity and humility. And I actually um, was honest, just honest, transparent, uh, no more bullshit. And that is where I think our relationship started to heal. So what happened with that mask you were wearing, that vibrato, the, the, that I'm a doctor, look at me, I can do all this. And and yeah. you would row with your wife or probably other people too. Alcohol might have led you to um, mm. have that happen and that other challenge. What caused mm. that mask of yours, that facade that you were presenting to people to just all of a sudden drop at that point in time? The work that I was doing... Um, through rehab? The, yep. That was the start. That was the start. It That started to to make uh, little cracks in my armor. In your armor. And suddenly. Mm -hmm. And the armor I thought was there to protect me. In reality, it kept me in the darkness. And when the, the chinks started appearing, suddenly light started shining in. And I thought, what the hell? And I wasn't realizing it then, but with hindsight, that, that is probably the best way I can describe it. Um, the, the mask protected me for such a long time, but equally it protected me from growing because, yes, there was, we all have got trauma. Let, let's, let me rephrase it. It's okay to throw a pity party. And from now on, then I still do that, actually, because so much shit happens to you. And you think, oh, for crying out loud. And you want to curl up in a ball and and be angry and be. And that's OK. That's OK. But I was living there. I put my tent up there in that pity party. Uh, and no, nah, no. Nah. So I learned that actually um, the pity party is OK, but it doesn't help me. So what I subsequently learned is that each and every challenge, each and every shit that happened to me, and a lot of it happened, um, that I can grow from that. And it gives me, call it tuition money, um, that I have to pay for certain experiences. Um, you, you start maybe a project, an enterprise, a, a publication, it doesn't work out. Well, you have learned from it. Sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. This kind of Sometimes you win, sometimes you But it's you realization, learn. though. You, they, have a, they have to have a realization that there's a difference. So you can have your good and your, you can have, you were having realizations. You would just, you were all of a sudden willing, you're going into rehab to get help. And it was making you look at different things, a different, through a different lens, because people, once Absolutely. they have that pattern behavior, we talk about from childhood to adulthood, everything they do in their lives goes through that filter. For you, it was Absolutely. alcohol. It was an alcohol filter, big time. Mm. You eventually had this epiphany and you became the willing to get change. And then it worked into having a, you know, an, a, th that moment mm. with your wife where you take ownership and you continue to move along the path. But mm. where I'd like to go from this is you talk about rehab, but then I also read about the fact of, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, for an example. AA, which I'm familiar with because I've I've tried helping people that I know throughout my life. Alcohol, I've seen it destroy families. I've seen it destroy business owners. I've seen it take people's lives. The list goes mm. on. But unfortunately, I've only have a surface glance for really what AA is because the fact that the people I tried helping didn't stay within the process. They weren't willing to have those epiphanies like you and realize, oh, here's a different way to think. Oh, tomorrow is another thing that's going to happen. I'm going to continue to move forward. They would quit. 
they'd go back in and retreat back into what they were comfortable their comfort zone you forced your way out of that so with the with that fact how does alcoholics anonymous or rehabilitation factor into and integrate with your book my steps to sobriety living a fantastic mm-hmm. life mm-hmm. without alcohol does your mm-hmm. book expand on the process of rehabilitation and alcoholics anonymous does it better it how does it integrate within your book what can people mm-hmm. expect mm-hmm. DAA as or Alcoholics Anonymous was was founded really in the 1930s in the United States um, by uh, two men who who had struggled themselves with alcohol and um, tried everything everything we alcoholics know so well. Uh, we don't drink beer; we only drink hard cells, uh, hard stuff. No, we don't drink hard stuff; only beer. We don't drink on a on the weekend, but we drink during the week. Oh no, other way around. They tried everything and really realized, nah, that all doesn't work. So um, they came up with 12 steps. And it was the 30s. And the thing that really sold was God. Um, so they they put uh, a lot of focus on um, God and, and Christianity into that system. Despite the fact that actually the founder of AA was actually not believing in God. Um, but that's something that they, they, they kept pretty quiet, uh, and it was only later becoming apparent in a letter of his wife. Many so was it a mar- they, was it a marketing? It was it was designed it is, as yes, a marketing. Yes, system, yes. Right? Well, it was something they wanted to wanted to help, and they wanted to see what what works. And God was obviously at that time uh, everyone was God fearing and and was working with Jesus Christ. In and that's okay. That worked. So they started with that, and they started with the twelve steps and. Um, the problem we've got nowadays, I believe, is that there are cliches, and AA is this displayed uh, in in films, often very inaccurate, and it's it's often very very weird what you see. So therefore, also I had no clue about rehab when I went into rehab. I was I I fought teeth and nails to to um to not go to rehab uh, because people wanted me to go and and i guess with hindsight there were offers there and I, now i don't have a problem it was complete denial on my side when i then uh went into rehab i started a process there and that process was a 12-step process so i think what i would like to do is i would like to disengage the 12-step process from aa uh, AA was the start of it, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, they now have broadened their approach. There's Narcotics Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, uh, Gambling Anonymous, etc. So uh, there is, um, it's a, the, it, one must realize that the 12-step program is a very sensible approach. And in my book, I compare it with a, with you having a friend and both of you own restaurants. And in your restaurant, it's going beautiful. I mean, there's just patrons forever. And in his restaurant, there's tumbleweeds rolling through. And one day he gives you a ring and says, man, I don't know what to do. Um, Can you give me a hand? I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And you say, of course. And as a friend, you would come across. And what would you do? You would probably go to his restaurant, sit down, order a a number of, of items from the menu and have a look around. So you see how the staff is behaving, what's the vibe, what's the music, what's the menu, what's the looks. And then thereafter, you will go behind the scenes with your friend and have a look. How does he run his restaurant? And you will do an inventory. You will do a very deep going inventory and have a look at everything. What are the menu items that sell? Which are the ones that that don't work? Um, are there processes within the kitchen that are more hindersome and maybe don't suit so well? Or are there other things that that might actually could be strengthened and, and work through? So once you have done that inventory, you can then put an action plan in place um, and sort that out and and put some steps in place. You might change the menu. You might do a a refurbishing on the front or give it just a new lick of paint, whatever it is. So you make changes and you drop those things that do no longer suit you. 
you then probably want to make amends. You probably, you know, you have got some clientele that forever came to you and they're now, now absent. So you might go on your mailing list or or put some advertisements out there and say, hey, um, still the same restaurant, but we have got a new vibe. Um, and for you staying loyal to us, we want to give you a 30% off your uh, first dinner with us or uh, free drinks when you come to us. So you, you say sorry to a certain degree um, through that. And then suddenly things are picking up in your restaurant and uh, now you are saying, oh, well, that has actually worked. So you now make sure that you're staying on that path. You do a maintenance plan. You do uh, maybe ongoing teaching, training with your staff. You do team building with your staff. You explore new ways of getting new customers. So you become far more invested in, in a in maintenance program. And down the line, both of your restaurants are running superbly. And your friend has had such a transformation and such a joy out of it that he's now saying, you know what? On every Tuesday morning before the restaurant starts, we actually have a uh, a cup of coffee for any restaurateur, any restaurant owner who is in trouble, uh, where we can just lend each other a hand and and sit together and debrief and, and just have some fun. What I've described to you there, that's probably a very logical thing that could happen right now, right here, um, everywhere. What I've described to you also is a 12-step program. And therefore, when we actually move away from God, move away from AA, from any kind of uh, misperceptions we have got or any kind of, oh my God, when I go there, I will be judged or whatever beliefs there are. Just throw it all aside for a moment and actually look at the program, what it could offer you, um, a 12-step program. You suddenly think, huh, that's okay. That actually makes sense. So it's basically, I use a 12-step approach like something you would do for a failing business. And in this, this case, the business is you. So would it not be nice to actually use a systematic approach in which we actually go through um, what is happening in you? What are the things that do no longer suit you? What can we do to actually uh, make you grow, make you the better person? And that is really what the 12-step program is. And the 12-step program is there to help you deal with the addiction in the first instance. But that's only the sobriety. So, okay, now you're sober. So what? <laughs> now what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, there's still the trauma. There's still the depression. There's still the emotions. There's still all the other shit happening. Well, in it's your a life. life. It's a life journey, is what you're you're getting at. It's for the Isn't rest it? of your life. And, and exactly. you know, some of the things that you mentioned. Um, so we can <clears throat> go on to a couple other things here before we have to close up the show. You you talked about you know connections. Well, I like the associations of the the people you associate with when you're an alcoholic. Mm. A lot of times you have to change your associations, mm. or you're gonna. It's just like a person that smokes cigarettes. If you continue to hang out with people that smoke cigarettes and you're break, you're not gonna quit. Mm. It's always taunting you. It's always your your six oh, yeah. inches is always pulled toward that thing that you were addicted to. So oh. I know with the alcoholics I've known they've have to change their lives. And, and it's not just that there's, they've lost their friends. As you've mentioned, so many things have changed, like rebuilding the restaurant, the failing business. It's the same thing. You have to, you have to go out and make amends, but you also have to have that realization that this is a process that's for life. And as you mentioned, there's so many different things. And once you have sobriety, you still have all the things that are going to drag you out of sobriety or, or off mm. the, you know, on the wagon, off the wagon, different things that mm. they use in North America as a conversation. So our associations are key. If you're an alcoholic watching shows, listening to people, hanging out with people that are drinking all the time, I can't see that ever being a good mm. thing. If you're with a significant other that you're deciding you don't want to be a person that's you, you want to change and and become sober and and heal yeah. your life and they don't, unfortunately, what do we have? We have financial and emotional and marital mm -hmm. breakdown that happens. Mm -hmm. um, but you know the realization is is something that's going to take time. Your book's going to help them understand that 
it's a logical process. It doesn't have to be mm. tied to religion. It doesn't have to be tied to anything but you accepting mm. the fact that you've been hiding, you've been drinking for, you know, or doing drugs. Like you said, there's Narcotics Anonymous. There's so many different things out there that can help people with addictions. Mm. You have to be willing and realize that you're going to have good moments and bad moments throughout the whole process. And even yourself, you probably still have that mm. experience, even though you're sober. And now you've written a book to help other people. Is life become perfect for you? I doubt it. It's, it's <laughs> right. It hasn't become perfect for any of us. We're still going to have, because we still have the outside noise of our, our family, which we can't mm. disassociate with all the time. But you should, if you're a recovering alcoholic and you're, your dad's an alcoholic, your grandpa or uncle are alcoholics. And all you ever do is when you see them, they're drunk. That's not going to be healthy for your recovery. So we we have to change our patterns. We have to, mm. we have to change the, the way that we've been living. And, you know, but that is, that is exactly where the, the step uh, seven comes in, the creating new habits, creating a new life in which you live intentional. You are yes. no longer the, the bearded lady in the circus. You are the ringmaster. You take control and you realize that whatever you do in your life, A, it's your choice. B, it's a privilege to have this choice. So you might as well make the best out of it. And every choice leads you either towards relapse or towards recovery in the sense of addiction. Or it, if you are suffering from a mental illness, uh, every choice that you make is either improving the chances that you feel good that day or improving the chances that you crash and burn. So it is completely up to you. Shit will happen and it will happen all the time, but it is a fact. We have got choices to make and you can take every second, you can take actions to make you head into the direct, in the right direction. Yeah. Using best thing for that. There was people, starting to realize and having gratitude and gratefulness for what they possess. And, you know, and the fact that life is in session, this isn't a dress Mm. rehearsal. You don't have a a redo. (laughs) There's not a re there's not a redo button. There's no way that we can fix everything that we've done. All we can do is accept it, you know, and we have to forgive ourselves, right. For the people listening and watching, forgive, you have to forgive yourself. Even if you're just starting this journey of understanding and discovery of that, you have an addiction or what, no matter what it is, you have to accept the fact that you can change. You're worthy that you deserve Mm. all the greatness in the world because tomorrow is not promised. Today's present. Are you present in your life? Are you trying to do those little baby steps to make things better? Do exactly. you have good run? Do you have good running mates beside you? Do you have people that are <laughs> running along beside you that are supporting you? If yep. you have people in your life that are dragging you down and making you think about your addiction, you really need to look at who you're talking to and who you're hanging uh, out with and and move forward. We could have a like a may, four or five hour podcast, but unfortunately, we're getting to the end of it. May, because, may I just may I just yes, make one absolutely. more point, please? Absolutely. An important point. Sure. We, I'm a workaholic. I'm an alcoholic. I probably was a sexaholic. And there are a few other holics um, that probably, if I dig deep and hard enough, that I find. Um, We are, at the core, we are addicts. And we need to realize that because uh, we, that addictive behavior is there. And often enough, we deal then afterwards, after we go into rehab, we deal with cross addictions. So now you're changing the poison, so to speak. So there are people out there who stop drinking and they start chain smoking. Then they stop chain smoking and they eat everything, every sugar granule that they possibly can have. And if they stop sugar, then they start masturbating 24-7. It is. is, These are all addictive behaviors. And we need to be very acutely aware of that. Um, It's so easy to just interchange addictions and not deal with the behavior. Uh, guilty as charged, um, I certainly immediately exchanged sugar for alcohol. Um, regrettably, that was one thing that was not so well done in my my rehab. They, there was always chocolate around. There was always these, these gummy snakes and stuff like that around, pure sugar. Um, so I went for that. Um, and I found myself nowadays still doing emotional overeating. So in the evening, it's still a 
eating too much is has become a new addiction for me. Nowadays, however, I also have got the awareness what is happening. And I've got willingness to actually see what is happening that I now know there is more work to be done. So when you say life is in session, that is so true. New challenges, external challenges will happen. Internal challenges are happening. There will be moods and, and more longer lasting moods, i.e. bouts of depression or anxiety or just other emotions will be there. So guys, don't don't think for a moment that you're doing once the work and that's it. You go once to the gym and now I'm healthy. That's it. Yes, yeah, my my six pack will last forever. <laughs> no, <Yeah>. don't. <laughs> well, I, I, I love that. I, I love that. So that's great because it would have probably come up because the next question I usually ask before I wrap up is if you were to give our listeners one class, one last closing message, pardon me, what mm -hmm. would you tell them in regards to giving a heck and never giving up? And I think you just gave that message. Yeah, right? but there's there's a simpler message. The past okay. does not equal the future. Perfect. The past does not equal the future. You have got choices to make. And it doesn't matter what you did yesterday or the day before or 30 years ago. You might not be proud of it. I don't care. Um, it was what it was. The past is gone. You can't relive it. Uh, you might learn from it. But no, right now you've got choices. Tomorrow hasn't happened yet. So, okay, yeah, yes, live in the present. Be, that's right. Be proactive, fair call, and think, okay, how can I maybe future-proof myself? Um, so if you live in an area where maybe there are blizzards, maybe you have some warm clothes around and maybe two free sources of heating and maybe different sources of food that last you for a month being snowed in. Okay, that makes yeah. sense. Well, do the same in your life, okay? And... This is this is the, the the key thing. Live intentional, and the past does not equal the future. Yeah, and work on, you know, there's so many different things that we need to change in our daily lives. Um, people don't live with again back to the gratitude. They don't live enough with mm -hmm. gratefulness for just waking up, having. If you have, if you're able to listen to this podcast, you mm -hmm. already have more than a few billion people on the planet the ability to connect to information and information that can help you grow and, and better your life on a daily basis. Stop watching and listening and reading garbage. If it makes you feel bad <laughs> and you feel, you feel anxious because it's talking about something that hasn't happened or you, it's something in the past and it depresses you stop listening, stop watching it. And, and, and sometimes it may sound simple, but it is that simple. When I change my associations of people, what I watch, listen, and read, my life got better because taking the news media out of my life, like you talked, you know, like we got to wrap it up here, but you talked in, about the fact that you got really good at the news and you had the next morning, you had to write an exam because of that. That teacher taught you to pay attention to the news, but he didn't do you a favor, in my opinion. He taught you to live in a world of negativity, a world of reactionary people, a world of people living in depression or anxiety or both. And, they, and, and you know, so I say that because people, I honestly believe there, there's very good little that you can get out of news that will help move your life forward if you're already struggling in addiction. Now, people that have a normalized life, they can watch news and it's like water off a duck's back. A person that's an addict and we haven't gotten into the things that I've had in my life, but I found that it was easier with my addictions of things that I had struggles with by changing my associations. And one of the biggest ones is when I got rid of the news already in the early 90s. <laughs> got rid of the newspaper, well, stopped reading well, it. It made my life better, right? <laughs> well, guys, just just look out for my steps to sobriety because I'm going to get Dwight onto my show. And <laughs> that's exactly the questions I will ask him. <laughs> so if you want to know the answer to that question, <laughs> tune into my show in due course. Right, right on. <laughs> So I appreciate your time. This has been great. We're going to have to have a part two in the future. I do that. I'm starting to do that more and more with the guests that I really appreciate yeah. and resonate with. There's lots I would love to still discuss with you because alcohol's damaged a lot of a lot of different people's lives. And, mm. you know, in my own personal life, I've mm. I've had kids that I know that are have no parents because they were killed do their drunk mm. driver, the list goes on. And, you know, there's just so many things that your insight would be really valuable for people to learn. Um, you know, 
people listening, um, my next question is, where do they reach out to you? How do they get a hold of you so that they can tap into your knowledge? Yes, they can go onto the Amazon and buy your book. I looked it up. Um, but how can they reach you easily so that they can ask, mm. you can ask them those questions or help them on their journey? The best thing is my website, mystepstosobriety.com, all written together. And there you can explore those things that I am, those projects that I'm involved in, those um, insights that I've got, my show, my books, uh, my my current project of actually changing my life because when i said i'm overeating um i want to see if what does it take to actually change my addiction this year so is it possible to drop from 144.5 kilogram to 99.9 kilogram in a year what are the lessons that i will learn how do i go about it those kind of things so i'm i'm starting this journey this year and i will be very open and public about that well being vulnerable being vulnerable is the only way that you can be a leader that you can mentor that you can serve others right and the sooner everybody realizes that vulnerability will save you and start you on the path to Hmm. Living a life that's on purpose, not by accident, which is my mission statement, right? So I know you have to get going, my friend. So I appreciate you so much being on the show. This has been a great conversation. Um, I appreciate you sharing some of your experiences so that others too can learn. It is never too late to give a heck. Thank you for taking time out of your day and listening to Give a Heck. If you find value, I'd appreciate you sharing with your friends and family so they too can learn how to live life on purpose, not by accident. So you do not miss the next episode. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and please also post a review. I look forward to reading your comments. This has been Dwight Heck. If you want to check out other podcast episodes or today's show notes, please check out my website, giveaheck.com. And until next time, Together, let us all strive to give a heck.